You can find more information, photos and advice sheets on all the plants and recipes that we talk about in this podcast by heading to the links in the show notes or on our website at sarahraven.com. Welcome to Grow, Cook, Eat, Arrange, the podcast of me, Sarah Raven, and lots of different guests. And today we've got a repeating guest, which is, that sounds a bit rude, doesn't it? Repeating guest, but anyway, you know what I mean, which is Josie Lewis, our head gardener here at Perch Hill. And what I thought I would love to talk to her at this time of year when everybody's making plans for their new gardens as we go from winter into spring is things that you can plant in your garden which are helpful to other plants. So a sort of companion plants or sort of beneficial plants really for the general health of your garden. It's something that we as an organic garden here are very preoccupied with. It's incredibly important to us to have this in a way, natural pharmacy of plants that help us grow a healthy garden. And Josie's been here nearly 11 years now. And over the years, we have done a lot of different trials and experiments with plants that help other plants out. And so I just thought it'd be a really lovely thing to have Josie on talking about. So hello, Josie. Hello. And I'll try not to repeat myself. (laughs) (laughs) I'm sure you won't repeat yourself. So the thing that I know Josie and I have talked about on the podcast before is using salvias with roses. So we can't not start with that. And it's a really beneficial planting duo, which is if you've got a healthy rose, it's got to be a healthy, strong variety. But if you then underplant it with small leafed salvias, and the ones we use here are the Gregii and Gemensis hybrids, things like Nechtlinde, Serapatosi, Royal Bumble, etc. They're all quite relatively compact subshrubs. They have sulfur in their scent profile, and when they warm up, they release sulfur, which is a na- natural fungicide, and keep your roses really healthy mildew and black spot free. And we've tried that over the years here and it really, really seems to be a success, doesn't it, Rosie? Josie? (laughs) Yeah, Yes, it it seems to. As you normally explain, this goes back pre-1968, was it, the Clean Air Act? Yeah. Um, Where there was a lot of sulfur dioxide in the air from coal burning from all the fires and there was hardly any black spot on roses. But since the Clean Air Act, you know, it's become quite a, a big problem. And so we went, rather than, you know, dusting your plants with sulfur and because yeah. a lot of those have been removed now from uh, retail, we looked for plants that had um, sulfur in their profile and salvias. Well, apart from being beautiful, such wonderful plants, they go well with roses, don't they? Yeah, yeah. And one of the things that you've also taught me is... Uh, really try and put your roses in quite a sunny spot because if you've got a fungal spore nearby, you know, a, a source of infection of the fungal spores, black spot mildew, they need moisture for the spores to germinate. So if you're going to get some contamination by fungal spores, you know, you will get that more likely if they are in a bit of shade. And so the combination of planting them in full sun 
and then underplanting them with these particular compact salvias really gives you the best chance as an organic gardener to have pristine roses. Yes, yeah, absolutely. And just, you know, be very good at your housekeeping. If you've got black spot, clear away all the leaves, you know, get get rid of those spores as much as you possibly can. So the next one we thought we'd talk about, we use mainly in the greenhouse, to be honest, but uh, if you get a problem with white fly anywhere in the garden, and I actually think not just white fly, but possibly, you know, any of the aphids, tagetes, the uh, marigold family, really seem to keep our white fly infestation here at bay. So we had a really bad white fly infestation here once where we had planted cucumbers and tomatoes and hadn't done any companion planting. And it was like a sort of ash bath. It was really, really depressing in there. And so we had to sharpen up our act. And we not only got the Encarsia wasp in, which maybe Josie will explain, but we also underplanted with tagetes. So will you will you talk to us a bit about that, Josie? Uh, yes, yeah, so tagetes, absolutely one of my favourite companion plants. It uh, releases a volatile oil called uh, limonene, which the whiteflies don't like at all. Uh-huh. So, and you know, particularly when it's warm, you'll get more volatile oils coming off. Uh, and in a glass house, that obviously works really well. You know, it, it's just one of the best things to to plant as a repellent, uh, and it's the limonene is quite a powerful chemical. And you can also get little tabs that you can hang in your glass house of limonene, which has been extracted from tagetes. Oh, uh, so it's widely that. widely used as a, sort of a, an organic way of uh, dealing with pests like that. Okay. And is it in both the tagetes and the calendulas, which are both called marigold, but they're not related, are they? I don't know if it, if there's as much in the calendulas. Right. You, know, you get quite a strong smell with tagetes, you do. don't you? Yeah, very distinctive. Uh, so no, that's something I'll have to look up. So I don't know if it's as, there's as much in the calendula. Okay. But I mean, famously, it's a good companion plant, isn't yes, it? Yes. Yeah. Um, and then you asked about the encarsia, yes. which is a parasitic wasp. Uh, so, I mean, it, it, it's not, you know, for the squeamish, but it lays its eggs in the white, in the white fly. So it's um, preying on the white fly and then they'll, you know, the, the larvae will destroy the, the white fly as they grow. So it's a bit barbaric, but it, it is. works. Yes, that's right. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Okay. Because that the, the same thing happens with the nematodes, isn't it? When you put the nematode, yes, exactly. it yeah. buries into the neck of the snail or, and, or the, the slug. and the slug yeah. and reproduces, I yes. think. And then as they hatch, they destroy the host. Yeah. But that's, um, you know, that's nature working. We might yeah. be squeamish, but it, yeah. it goes on. You know, that's yeah. the cycle of life, isn't yeah. it? Yeah. Well said, well said. <laughs> and then what about Tagetes minuta, which is the tall one, and it's called minuta because it actually has tiny flowers. So it's the least showy, very oh, yeah. tall, used in very chic restaurants for herb teas. I, I've had one and it's got a slightly apple flavor to the leaf and, um, and is, is quite popular. I've had it in Holland, actually. But so what does that do? Yeah, well, this is, I mean, this is such a great plant if you've got problems with perennial weeds. So it, it exudes root secretions, which have a herbicidal effect. So if you plant it amongst your ground elder, ground ivy, celandine, anything like that, you know, the, the effect isn't immediate and you'll have to do it year after year right. for a heavy infestation of these weeds. 
then you know to, it will gradually have this herbicidal natural mm. herbicidal effect on anything around it you know you see it as well with fennel don't you the the area yes. around fennel nothing will grow in it because it wants to keep that area free for its babies to grow ah, so yes. it clears out everything else only its own family can grow there uh, and it's the same with the tadger teas really that's what it's doing it's clearing the ground Oh, gosh, that's so interesting. I hadn't thought about that with fennel, but of course it's true, which is why you then get carpets of bronze fennel yes, and there's nothing else there at which all. Which I battle against all the time. Yes, I know you do. <laughs> you, you hate them. I love them. <laughs> I love the look of them. Yeah. And the, the Tajdi's Minuta is you know, widely used uh, for perfumery as well. You talked about the sort of the apple flavor. Oh, I see. It's widely used in that industry as well. As an extract of the of the oil of the of the root of the or the leaf well, I, I assume the whole plant okay. extract yes oh, that's yeah. so interesting and and then it has insect insecticidal properties uh it's effective against nematodes bacteria and fungus you know it's Gosh. an all-round good plant okay so before you all rush out and sow vast quantities of it i've just got to give you a aesthetic warning i mean th- this isn't a beauty just no, just to be really at all. clear no it's tall green, not very flowery. Look, to be honest, looks remarkably like a cannabis plant. Um, but it, it, it's, anyway, it just does. If you think of it as your stalwart friend, it yeah. will always be there in the background yeah. working away, but don't expect great floweriness from it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so, but if you had a really quite a bad infestation, I mean, we used it here against a bindweed and ground elder infestation in a rose bed. And it hasn't completely gone. The bindweed has, the ground elder hasn't, but it's knocked about so much that it's really easy to keep on top of it and it hasn't spread since we did it. You know, it hasn't re-established again. So I would really recommend it. So that's Tagetes minuta. And you can just remember that because it's got a minute flower. So it's not one of those big African marigold flowers. So the, the next one that I think is interesting to talk about is basil and I find basil such an interesting plant because I've spent quite a lot of time in Greece and in every Greek taverna, well, I'm exaggerating, but you really, really commonly see a tomato, X tin tomato tin or an olive oil tin with the Greek bush basil, the little tiny leaved basil. And when you squash the leaf of that, you realize it is quite lemony, citronellary and Whenever I've asked them why they grow it, it's because they think it really does keep the mosquitoes at bay. So in a way, that's repelling an insect. And yet I've seen it used really widely in Greek vegetable plots where it's underplanted under things like aubergines and peppers, which are, of course, out in the Mediterranean. They can grow them outside. They don't need them in the greenhouse. And they are drawing in the pollinators. So they're drawing in bees and um, hoverflies and butterflies because they, they're very fragrant, of course, basil is. And they love the little flowers. They're very rich in, in nectar. And so it's sort of strange that it has... It's a, it's a two-way thing, it's a two-way isn't it? Thing. Yes, yeah. yeah. It repels some and, as you say, it attracts the others. But that is a good companion plant. And uh, like you say, the lemony smokes the citronelle, isn't it? Yeah. That you get just candles and everything but it's any of those lemon plants like lemon balm is often recommended oh 
as a as an insect repellent. Yes, yeah, yeah. And oh. um, what's the other one? Bacchusia that we have in the oh, in yes. the glass house. Yeah, anything really lemony like that that's got the citronelle in it, they won't like. Oh. So that's good. So again, and they're super sensitive. They're they're super sensitive to the smell of it. Yes, yeah, yeah. I, I wonder really if it works like against it. midges. As someone who was brought up in Scotland, yes. and midges <laughs> were the bane of my life. It's worth a try. Um, Definitely worth a try. But anyway, it, here, how we use basil very much is we absolutely underplant our tomatoes with a mix of tagetes. We use red gem and we absolutely adore uh, tagetes burning embers. But we use that as a cut flower quite a lot. It's taller, so it's good for cordon varieties of tomatoes, but you don't want it to choke the base of the plant. And so just remember to allow good circulation in, but you need to have basils and tagetes in relatively close relationship to both your cucumbers and to your tomatoes, particularly when they're confined in a greenhouse, because that's when you'll get a buildup of these pests. And I promise you it works. I mean, the number of people when the gardens are open here that walk in and say to me, oh, Sarah, how come your tomatoes are looking so pristine? Mine are just an absolute, they're just heaving with different aphids, but particularly whitefly. And I just say, well, you know, it's just those pretty things underneath. And people find it difficult to believe that you don't need to reach for the chemical, but you really, really don't. They, I absolutely promise it just works so effectively. Yeah, and if if you do use the chemicals, you're killing off the good stuff as well. It's not selective. Exactly, exactly. And then I thought we would talk about particularly mildew, because I know I get asked really quite commonly in in a dry summer like we had last summer, when mildew is is particularly prevalent, powdery mildew, isn't it? Yeah. Yes. So I wondered if you'd talk about your favoured treatments that are organic against mildew. Well, we do use chive tea, which is uh, you know just normal household chives that you'd use in your salads. So you chop up the chives and steep them in boiling water, and then strain them. You know when it's cool, you uh, use that as a spray against mildew. But you have to use it preventatively. You know, once once mildew is established, it's not going to cure it. Yeah. But even slightly better than that, but it's not a plant, obviously, is sodium bicarbonate spray, you know, sodium bicarb that you'd have in your kitchen drawer. Right. So you mix your sodium bicarb. There's all sorts of recipes online, uh, you know, a couple of teaspoons with you know, a tiny amount of household liquid soap. So, oh. you know, really pure soap which helps it stick to the oh, leaves. Yeah, sticky, yeah. Yeah. Um, some people say put oil, you know, horticultural oil in with it as well, just a splash, again, to help the solution work more. So you spray this mixed-up solution, you know, onto the leaves against mildew, which we do, the, uh, the ranunculus that are growing in the glasshouse. So Kelly's been spraying that since... December. Oh, she started yes. in as soon as the leaves appear, then start. You know, don't wait for the mildew. Oh, start spraying. Okay, so I just I just want to explain that a little bit more. So, you know what I mean by ranunculus, which are either those beautiful little buttons, multi multi petaled button cut flowers, or we're absolutely crazy here about the butterfly ranunculus, which are um, single or semi double, and open and utterly utterly beautiful. They flower here in the greenhouse from February or March until the summer, until June. And outside, they flower in May and June. 
But the thing we find about particularly the button, um, the fully double Renunx, is that they get mildews so badly. So the leaves almost become like paper, like dry, crispy paper, and they just sort of disintegrate with um, mildew. So we've been trying different trials over the years how to be able to grow ranunculus organically, but without uh, the use of chemical sprays. So it sounds like bicarb, either sodium bicarb or potassium bicarb. Where do you get that though, Josie, potassium bicarb? I think if you're a home brewer, you'd use potassium bicarb. Right. So wherever you get that sort of, uh, or online, obviously you can get it. So we'll report more on that. So here we are now as sort of where spring is starting. And so far, we have no mildew on our ranunculus leaves at all. Not so yet, no. We've got about Fingers crossed it'll 40 or 50 plants growing in the greenhouse that I saw this morning, and they're looking absolutely fresh and healthy. But I promise you, we will report back, and I will tell you if it does or doesn't work in the end, because, of course, they're still pretty freshly grown now, so they're less likely to be struggling, and it's quite cold. And once it gets hot and dry as we as we move through the spring, it's more likely to get mildew, but so I'll report back on that. And then the other thing that we've also been trialling is garlic spray. So w- will you tell us all how you how you prepare that? Yeah, garlic spray is used more against aphid, you know, not, not so much mildew. So you, you get a whole bulb of garlic and blitz it up, if you can bear that in your uh, <laughs> kitchen processor. Mix it with 250, so blitz it with 250 mils of water and then add another 750 mil to make up the litre and just allow it to steep overnight. Again, strain it and put it in a sprayer bottle. And then, you know, the, again, the aphids hate anything like that. It's it's the anything you can think of, really, that's got that pungent smell, you know, to, it will repel these insects. So if you already had an infestation, that wouldn't be so effective, but it's really good preventatively. Yes. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Great. Great. And then the other thing that is incredibly important to us here is consciously, not just keeping these diseases, particularly mildew and black spot at bay, but also thinking about it in a more positive way. So to create a really healthy microenvironment, we want to attract as many beneficial insects as we possibly can into our garden space here. And so we are always thinking about hoverflies, ladybirds, lacewings, ground beetles, you know, parasitic wasps. You know, there's, if there's anything that we can draw in, and keep hold of that will help us keep this place healthy, we'll do it. So what are the things for hoverflies that you think are particularly good, Josie? Uh, so dill, cosmos, alisum, calendula, any of the, well, any herbs really, you know, anything okay. that's got that pungent smell really is it's great for hoverflies. And I'm thinking, I, I seem to remember when I did that Bees and Butterflies program for the BBC, they love umbles, don't they? So yes. I think yeah. Amy... Um, I th- seem to remember they love Amy, which is why dill fits there. Yeah, you'll see them on the dahlias as well. Ah, oh, um, the hoverflies. Yeah. Um, I mean, aren't there something like thousands of different 
varieties yes. of hoverfly in yes, this country. Yes, absolutely. We just don't yeah. notice them because we no. think they're flies. But. No, but we always talk about bees, but, you know, yeah. it's just so many other important things out yeah. there. And they are the most busy pollinators of all, I think. I mean, I think yeah. without hoverflies, you know, we're done for. Our yeah. food crop will be no longer. And then ladybirds, obviously, they're so recognisable. Yes. Um, yeah. And, you know, we all kind of love uh, and then love to hate if we get a plague. But, <laughs> yeah, they're, they're larvae look crazily scary don't they that's right and I think it it you know I'd encourage people to look up what the larvae look like because a lot of people have said to me oh, I thought that was something you know offensive and Bad. awful pest yes because uh, they look so unlike anything you'd expect yeah yeah if you recognize them and you know care for them yeah and we'll put a picture of of them in the podcast notes of them I mean a ladybird larvae yeah because it looks quite threatening and looks bigger than a ladybird that's the odd thing about them yes yeah uh, and again, you've got to provide the food. You know, ladybirds will tend to go where there's going to be aphids and things for their young to eat, for the larvae to eat. Yeah. So they'll choose the plants. Of but course. they also need to be fed. And again, you know, it's the fennel, the dill, uh, yeah. the marigolds that they like to um, feed on. Yeah. And then the parasitic wasps, so that's the encarsia, is it? Yes, things like that. Yeah. I mean, again, there's so many of them, like right. the hoverflies. They're all out there doing their work. But again, they, they need forage as well. It's not just them laying their eggs we yes. think of. It's, it's what do they need. And is there any particular group that they, they like, the parasitic wasps? Again, it's the, the, the same things keep coming up. It's the fennel, the dill, okay. um, you know, the, yeah. the herbs. They, they yeah. like those open, open flowers, cosmos, ami, the umbels. Good. And then ground beetles. I mean, that's, I know that's a sort of new thing that I know we've been trying to encourage here as much as we possibly can. And it, like toads and frogs and birds, they love slugs and snails, yes. don't they? Yeah. Yeah. And it's, it's not being too tidy in your garden. Yes. I saw the gardeners the other day in the Dutch yard and they were clearing out all the last of the leaves. I was going, oh, Okay, I walked in. I said, what are you doing? Yes. I said, oh, don't you do this? So we, we tend to leave, I mean, as well as the, the leaves rotting down into the borders and feeding the yeah. soil, which is great, it also provides a bit of a hiding place for ground beetles and all those friendly things we want. Yeah. You know, because the leaves aren't infected, it's just autumn leaf falls. So, you know, they're not going to harm the soil by being on the soil. No, yeah, I totally agree. And I remember... Arthur Parkinson, you know, who, who um, is just taking a bit of time away from the podcast at the moment to write a book, he absolutely hates those, those leaf blowers. Oh, yes, absolutely. Because he always says there's no worse destroyer of biodiversity than a leaf blower. It's because very true. all those little mini things that you don't see and, and aren't really aware of, of course, rotting down leaves, there's nothing they love more than that. That's it. Yes, yeah. And, you know, we've, we've, we've got to look after that. You know, it's a, another layer of habitat that we just clear away. We put it on yeah. the compost heap, but, yeah. you know, it's just leave it where it is and it'll be fine. Do you know, I've become more and more aware of that because we've got a wood-burning stove in, in our kitchen, our sort of living room. And I sort of worry now when I put some uh, some of the wood on it, I think, oh, no, how many little <laughs> invertebrates yeah. am I burning as I put in here? I don't know. One, I ha one has to live somehow, but... Yes. <laughs> well, I would assume, you know, once it's cut and once it's been stored for a while, they'll they'll move on. Okay. So don't feel too bad. Okay. Good, good, good. And then just to sort of finish, 
what are the sort of general garden plants that are good companions? I mean, I know mint is meant to be absolutely brilliant for sort of general health in a garden. And I know repels ants. And so if you get an ant infestation anywhere, just make a carpet of mint and you'll find that they go away. Yeah, particularly the penny royal is is good for that. Oh. Um, they they seem to like that even less than the others. So, oh, okay. Yeah, we had that in our trial, in our mint trial last year, didn't we, the, the penny royal? Yes. And did you notice that it was sort of... No, no ants moved into any of the okay. mint pots, so well, that I was couldn't judge. Chance or not? Yeah, yeah. And then borage with tomatoes—that's another sort of traditional companion planting, isn't it? Yes, yeah, yes, that's good for them. Agastache, I know, and the mustards—they're incredibly good biofumigants of soil, aren't they? Yes. So I just wonder whether, if we finish, perhaps if you wouldn't mind talking us through the plant teas that we make. I mean, we've we've discussed chive tea, but maybe you could just talk about comfrey tea and nettle tea. Yes. So comfrey tea, I mean, I'd always have a patch of comfrey in, in the garden. It was the variety Bocking 14, yeah. I think, which doesn't spread. Yeah, it's not invasive. Yeah. So, you know, go for that variety if you're going to, you don't want comfrey taking over your garden collect the leaves and you can either put them straight on the compost heap which is brilliant you can lay them around plants which helps fertilize the soil and you can make them into tea as you say now i think you've got personal experience of this haven't you? i have yeah <laughs> you cut the leaves and fill a bucket and weigh them down water fill the bucket with water on yeah. top of the leaves and then you just lay them down don't you and then it turns into some disgusting smelling but really worthwhile, rich fertilizer. Yeah, it is. But I think you got it all over yourself, didn't I did, you? I did, I did. And then, funnily enough, a very sweet, I think it was when I was on Gardener's World, I can't remember. Anyway, a very sweet person wrote to me and they said, Sarah, I've discovered this brilliant system with comfrey and nettle tea, which is that I use a wine in a box container. Oh, okay. And... You leave the cardboard outer and you know they have that sort of silver inner with the tap and you just cut a little bit off the corner and you hang it from a hook from your washing line, best outside because it stinks, and you pack it full, the whole vacuum pack, you pack it full of either the comfrey leaves or the nettle leaves, obviously wearing rubber gloves if it's the nettles, and you pack it full you fill it with water from that top and then you close it with a tight clip and you leave it for 10 days. And then, of course, the little the tap that you've had your wine out of at the bottom is the perfect thing. So oh, you can okay. just release yourself and you do 10 mils to a litre of water and you've then got this homegrown, homemade, fantastic fertiliser. And if you mix the comfrey with the nettle, comfreys are rich in potash, Nettles are rich in nitrogen. And so by mixing the two, you actually have a very broad spectrum organic fertilizer. Oh, okay. Yes. And, yeah, um, what a great way of doing it. Yeah. I mean, yeah. it makes it a little less offensive. <laughs> we have to empty the wine box first. Yes. Well, that would be nice. <laughs> Good. And so we're, we're going to be doing more trialing of all these through the year. So yes, towards yeah. the end of this year, we will tell you any new discoveries that we've had about companion planting plants being good for other plants, all this kind of stuff, which I don't know about you, but we find incredibly interesting at Perch Hill and allows us to have 
so many birds, so many bees, increasing number of butterflies, and lots and lots of wasps and hoverflies. And don't hate your wasps because they are brilliant, brilliant pollinators they too. They are, yes, absolutely. One last plant. Very good, Josie. If, if you choose one and I choose one. Okay. Phacelia. If you've got to put anything in your garden, so brilliant for pollinators and use it as a green manure. Fantastic plant. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I always feel a bit sad that you're meant to plough it in before it flowers because I absolutely love those blue yes, flowers. Yes, you have to do a bit, a bit of a bit each. Of both. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, I think mine would probably now be Amivisnaga. And I think that's because it's the most wonderful cut flower. It's a bit chunkier than Amimagus, but it flowers for literally three times as long and the seed heads are really good. And what I've found with it is it's absolutely heaving with little mini bees plus hoverflies as soon as it comes into flower, but then the birds just adore the seed. And so it has kind of four, five months of biodiversity usage, I think, in the garden here, as well as being elegant and really lovely as a cut flower. There's nothing I love more than just a big vase of it in the window here, just on its own, take a few of the leaves off, sear the stem ends in boiling water, just into a clear glass vase, absolute winner so winner for us aesthetically and a winner for nature and it's still standing all through winter yeah it's great it is so great architecture too thank you so much Josie pleasure it was lovely to talk to you and we will report back on the science later in the year thanks very much for listening to Grow Cookie to Range and I hope you enjoyed hearing Josie and I chat about a bit of the science and trialling that we do about organic gardening here at Perch Hill. Next week, I'm going to be joined by Gary Newell, who is one of our senior horticultural buyers for our online nursery. And he and I are going to chat about really bomb-proof plants. So the things that he has experienced in his garden and that I've experienced here with Josie that are just really easy to look after, that really are minimal TLC and yet look superb. So hope I see you then. You can find more information, photos and advice sheets on all the plants and recipes that we talk about in this podcast by heading to the links in the show notes or on our website at sarahraven.com.